too many movies. I watch too much TV. I have too many kids. And now, we're doing a podcast. The Discerning Geeks Portal. better every day I swear it does now recording welcome everyone to the discerning geeks portal where each week we'll be taking a discerning look into all things geek i'm Yay! dave and i'm joined with my best friends david say hey dave no <laughs> and todd how's it going and we are the discerning geeks i'm not a singing monkey for you i know i know We'll get that ready. We'll get that down one of these days, probably by the time we change our intro. But we are here. We are the Discerning Geeks, and it is now time to decide which movie we have decided to review this week. And for that, I will turn it over to Todd. Todd, what movie do we have? This week's movie is A Knight's Tale. Yay! Yay! After his master dies, a peasant squire in medieval Europe creates a new identity for himself as a knight so that he can compete in jousting competitions for survival, glory, and to get the girl of his dreams. A Knight's Tale is starring Heath Ledger as William Thatcher, a.k.a. Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein, the main character. Uh, Co-starring Rufus Sewell, Shannon Sossaman, Paul Bettany, Laura Fraser, Mark Addy, Alan Tudyk, Berenice Bejo, Scott Handy, James Purefoy, and Christopher Casanova. It came out on May 11, 2001, with a rating of PG-13, and it is written, directed, and produced by Brian Helgeland. Thank you. Awesome. What was that guy's name? Brian Helgeland, I think. I, I, I hope I didn't butcher any of those names. It's, is well, he like a, it's is not he like necessarily a, a, like a super blockbuster star-filled cast. I mean, well, yeah, at, he's the time, at the time, yes. Now, in hindsight, with the unfortunate death of Heath Ledger, who I, I completely agree, but that's a horrible loss. You have no idea what kind of an actor we lost when he died. Um, but, yeah, but, you know, you have actually seen a lot of these people in other things, too. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. No, I, I, I just didn't recognize a whole lot of them when I watched the, show, the movie. I, I don't so. recognize the director's guy's name. That's the whole reason I'm like... <laughs> Well, yeah, Brian Helgeland, Ed, I looked at him in uh, Internet Movie Database, and it looks like he does a lot of double and triple duty between writing, directing, and producing. A lot of his projects, he does more than one thing. The one, he's known for a few stinkers, like he, uh, I think, produced and wrote and maybe even directed The Order, which also stars Heath Ledger, if I remember correctly, and I've never seen it, but I've heard bad things about it. However, he was also the writer and producer on L.A. Confidential, which, if I remember correctly, did get some Oscars uh, or at least some nominations. And then as far as the stars, actually one of my favorite actors in this, uh, Rufus Sewell. Uh, he was in Dark City, Victoria. Uh, he was in a great episode, just a one shot of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, and he was one of the main villains in Man in the High Castle. Uh, Shannon Sossman went on to be in Moonlight, Sleepy Hollow. Paul Bettany is better known as Jarvis and Vision in the MCU. Uh, Mark Addy. Yeah, Mark Addy went on to play uh, King uh, 
Baratheon. Baratheon in Game of Thrones. Mm. And then Alan Tudyk went on to play in Firefly, Serenity, Con Man, and Rogue One. Yeah, I mean, every one, of, every one of these, this is, I don't know if this is the movie that you could actually say was, you know how, like, uh, I guess the best example is, uh, if anybody is old enough to remember The Outsiders, in which, if you watch The Outsiders, every super duper male character that ended up playing from, you know, your favorite Patrick Swayze movie to Tom Cruise movie, et cetera, so forth, every male action star that you could think of was in that film. <laughs> and this is kind of the same thing. Uh, Night's Tale, for some odd reason, was just that gathering of people that that was like, oh, this is a cute little thing, and then went on to, wow, you know? So I don't know if it's actually their starter role, because I think some of them were in other things before, but this was definitely a movie where a lot of the people in it went on to other things. I think it was for Shannon Sossman, who played Jocelyn in the movie. Uh, I didn't fact check this, but I did read that this was her first big starring role in a movie. So how much she did before that in like TV or commercials or smaller movies. I'm not sure. Well, so what's first impressions? What did you guys think of this movie? Oh, this is great. This, this the movie is just fun. I mean, I love movies like this. They're just fun to watch. It's, it's nothing that's uh, fantastic. It's, it's nothing that's, uh, you would like run out the door and be like, Oh my God, Oh my God, you have to see this. Uh, but it's definitely, it's just a fun movie to watch. It's, it's an interesting take on taking, a genre and a type of film like a medieval film and going, Hmm, what if I made it into a sports movie <laughs> and does a very excellent job at it uh, using the same things that you would see in most sports movies that you have watched. Uh, anything that you've watched from like draft day to the replacements to uh, any given Sunday. Uh, if you know any of these films, when you watch this when you watch a Knight's Tale, you're going to go, wait, that's like the same thing they do in these films. It's like, yes, uh, they just blatantly did it because I think everybody was having fun making it, making it and watching it. Yeah. And first you, impression, Todd, what was your first impression? Well, just like Dave saying, they, they kind of made this a sports movie, but it's not obvious right away because, you know, I've seen this movie several times, but usually through bits and pieces, like, you know, changing channels or, or, or whatever. Uh, but I'd forgotten that, it begins with uh, some words on the screen. I can't like a subtitle or something, almost like the crawl in Star Wars, telling you some information about the medieval times and the the uh, active jousting and everything. And it's playing some music that almost makes it sound like it's going to be some kind of epic fantasy movie. And then the very first scene are these three squires trying to wake up their dead knight uh, that they work for because he's crapped himself to death. And so then you, you're thinking, okay, is this going to be some kind of slapstick comedy or something? What What is going on here? But then the next scene is them actually going into the arena and they're playing We Will Rock You. Yeah. And you're seeing people uh, dance and eat food. And, uh, and that's when you start to get the impression, oh, okay, yeah, this could actually be a sports movie because by then they've already made the decision to try to take one of those squires and actually enter him in the contest as if he is the, the, the knight that has just died. And uh, so that leads me to, to one of the big strengths in this movie is the use of music. Uh, and they incorporate the music in really interesting ways, because even though it's a medieval setting, according to, to a couple of sources I read, it's supposed to take place in 1372, but I'm not positive about that because I don't think it's ever mentioned in the movie itself. 
but it's a medieval setting and the soundtrack is full of these modern songs. And, you know, in our uh, review last week of, of The Martian, I talked about this term diegetic sound. It's this sound that both the audience and the characters hear. Well, in a way, this is a new spin on diegetic sound because we, the audience, are hearing We Will Rock You by Queen. And we're actually hearing the, the studio version of it with modern instruments. But the crowd in the movie, they are hearing We Will Rock You also, and they're singing it. And you can even tell because there are times where you see certain characters mouth the words We Will Rock You. So they are singing the song We Will Rock You, but they're playing it in their own way. Like when the song does get done, you see four trumpeters drop their their horns. So we're led to believe that this whole time, these four horn players were playing the song We Will Rock You but in a medieval way. And we, the audience, were hearing it in the modern way. And I just thought that was a really cool technique. And of course, these little anachronisms carry on throughout the rest of the movie, uh, which, give the, which give the movie this neat kind of quirkiness and this charm uh, and, uh, and keeps it lighthearted. And, uh, and then the last thing I'll say about the, the music is that it was so good that I actually bought the soundtrack back in the days when, wow. you know, you can actually have CDs in stores. And I still sometimes uh, listen to these songs uh, on shuffle sometimes. I like the soundtrack. I will be honest. First impression when I very first watched this movie and I had to go back and remember, I thought it was a little too quirky and a little too weird. And I almost didn't like it. My first impression was, oh, wow, this is kind of dumb. I don't like it. You get to that scene where him and, and Jocelyn are dancing and, and it goes into golden years. And, and it's like, this is kind of dumb. Second watching, I enjoyed it more. Every time I've watched it since, I've enjoyed it even more. And it is. It's just a fun take on kind of this this way of doing a movie it's almost and i've joked about it um i think even with you guys to me it feels like hey if i had to make a movie this is about what what i would make i wouldn't go through the trouble of writing some ancient score that you know with this medieval music in it i'd find a song that i like and i'd put it in there you know Mm -hmm. it's like what else are you going to play when you've got two people competing you know and it's all who's going to win you play we will rock you um i mean that's what you do so in a way i think um it took a little bit for me to to kind of really buy into it um but now I do. I see it as a fun movie. I, I enjoy the music. I enjoy what they did with it. Uh, I, overall, uh, it was it's a great time every time I watch it now. So, yeah, you were talking about the the dancing scene. I mean, you guys know me. I, I don't dance. I don't know how to dance. I'm never going to watch Dancing with the Stars. I'm just not into dancing. But the dance in this movie is one of my favorite scenes because it it takes those anachronisms that I was talking about. It's kind of like the the ultimate. <laughs> Uh, example of the anachronisms because they not only incorporate the modern music but also the the modern dance styles it it doesn't make sense either because for one thing you've already got the anachronistic aspect of it but also the villain in the movie lord adamar he uh, has challenged sir ulrich to try to teach the crowd a dance from his native land. So uh, William, who is faking to be Sol- Sir Ulrich, 
he's trying to teach people, but he's not very good at it. He's not good at dancing in the first place. He's also not good at teaching. Uh, he, so he, he just learned how to dance like 30 minutes before the dance. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So he's he doesn't know what he's doing. So he's trying to teach. And then everybody just starts dancing like crazy. And it's when the, the music transitions from the medieval music to the, the modern day David Bowie song and people start doing the modern dancing and it's a pretty quick transition. So it doesn't make sense because supposedly he's teaching people how to dance, but they're just kind of doing their own thing, but it's still cool. I don't, I can't explain it. It's just, it's cool. It's charming. It somehow works. It may not work in any other movie, but somehow it works in this movie. And then as an added bonus, I mentioned that Lord Adamar was kind of the villain, villain of the movie. And he was trying to do this to embarrass Ulrich but it kind of works out for Ulrich. He he kind of has taught everybody this new dance. And so you see Adamar off in the corner kind of ticked off because this thing backfired on him and he just storms out. So, uh, so that, yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. As I'm watching this and as we're kind of talking about it, there was something that did strike me and I want to kind of touch base and see what your guys' impression was. Um, women in this movie... Um, now we know, obviously, from the way they're doing the take, it's a modern take. It's it's been very modernized with the music, with with a lot of the story elements. What was your take on the women in this movie? I mean, obviously, they weren't treated like you know 13th, 14th century women uh, as far as the regular story goes. Well, see, no, I don't. I wouldn't agree with that. I wouldn't agree with that because Lord Adamore completely treats. The princess, um, or the the lady. I'm not sure, really sure she's a princess. Awesome, uh, yeah. e- exactly the way women were treated back then, which were prizes to be won, et cetera, so forth. Which is part of the whole concept of the film in which uh, William or Orc, Eurix, uh, whatever, I can't say his name for some reason, um, does it in such a different way. Oh, Thank you. I thought, okay, it was Orc. Thank you. Um, does it in such a different way. Uh, to win her heart as opposed to just being uh, a manly man in your club funk. Uh, however, now granted with being, with saying that um, the women in this movie are modern women. Uh, they are not the, what you would consider a historical timepiece, but I think maybe that's one of the reasons why it was never done in a historical timepiece as well. There are definite examples that if you know anything of history, it, these girls would not have been able to get away with if they were actually in the 13th century. But yet you can kind of suspend disbelief in my mind when you do watch it because you do understand that she has some standing in this society in which if she does displease someone, it's probably not going to be to her face because she obviously has enough power that they're going to let what she's doing kind of slide. And she hasn't really done anything that would warrant anything that we have read about probably of you know women not being in their place which i think works i think there's a dichotomy of these characters there is that's definitely i think that some of the characters are acting very out of what would have been the typical role that they were in Uh, but then they also do pay homage to those roles Uh, you know there's the that I think even in one scene that's it's specifically mentioned, you know, are you a woman or a blacksmith? And she's like, yeah, sometimes I'm both, you know, and, and that was, was one of my favorite quotes, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so you have those moments of 
kind of paying homage to it. Like you said, even with uh, with Count Anima um, trying to um, win her, he doesn't try to woo her. He doesn't try to, to you know, he's not trying to do anything, but, you know, I'm in negotiations with her father to, right. to make her my wife. You, she doesn't have a say in it. Nobody has a say in it. Um, even to the point, uh, one of my favorite scenes is where they're writing the, her the love letter. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, William and, and all the, his um, cohorts are Roland and, and Walt and uh, even the blacksmith are all standing around with Chaucer writing a, a, her a love letter. Um, and there's these moments where it's like, you know, tell her you miss her breast. You know, oh, yeah, women like that, you know, to, well, let's let's actually try to, to, to woo her a little bit. Um and and actually change the dialogue to uh Chaucer keeps trying to lean him, you know, oh think a little higher. Oh her neck? No, let's go a little higher still, you know, let's think think about her mind. Um but that wasn't the case back then. Women weren't seen in any way other than, you know, the that prize to be won that, you know, stick them in the um house and breed with them and, and be done. So it definitely had a, a very strong lean towards modernizing these women. Yeah. You mentioned the, the love letter scene. That's actually one of my favorite scenes because I love it when you get to see different sides of characters. And so you've got Roland who's very protective and Watt who is kind of crazy and, and quick to anger and everything, but you see that they each have their, their different side to them. And Kate is probably my favorite character in the movie. And so it's interesting to get her backstory that she is uh, a widow uh, and so she mentions her, her husband who passed away. And it, it is neat how they're all able to contribute something to that love letter. But you, you bring up women. I would actually go so far as to say that the three women in the movie are the three smartest characters in the movie. Uh, Dave, you already touched on a little bit with Jocelyn, how she's kind of the modern woman uh, that definitely factors into her clothing and her hairstyle, which actually also dips a little bit into one of my big pet peeves with the movies. So maybe we'll get to that later, but she definitely has her own style. It is somewhat modern and she bucks the trend and kind of defies authority. And so she's smart in that way. And then you have Kate, like I said, possibly my favorite character in the movie. Uh, She had to inherit her, her husband's business. At least I assume that's how she became the, the female blacksmith. And she's able to uh, figure out how to heat steel in a certain way that makes it lighter and thinner, but just as strong, if not stronger. And she also uh, carves her own symbol into the armor, which looks like a double Nike symbol. Yeah, so I thought that was another neat that's little That's a nice joke, I will say. Yeah. That's a nice yeah. joke. And then uh, you've got Christiana, the handmaiden of Jocelyn. I have my own little conspiracy theory on how she's smart. All right, I've already mentioned a little bit on how I don't exactly like some of Jocelyn's style. Her her clothes are a little bit weird and her hairstyle is really weird. But I think, who is dressing her and who's doing her hair? Christiana. And in any scene that the two are in, Christiana always looks 10 times better. And I'm wondering, is Christiana intentionally making her, her lady look bad so that she looks better? And so my own little conspiracy theory is that that's how Christiana is smart. She's making herself look better by doing these weird experiments on her, on her lady's hair and, and, uh, and makeup and, and clothing. Just admit it. Just admit it. You think she's yes, hotter. I do. <laughs> Actually, I, ha- I have to, I can't, I can't deny that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- they're I, both good I, looking. I, I do don't get me wrong. Yeah. But um, 
uh, yeah, the the handmaiden is hotter. Which, by the way, my favorite scene. If you really want to go with favorite scenes, here's my favorite scene. My favorite scene is basically Orc has been trying this whole time to find out what Jocelyn's name is, and this is kind of early in the movie. It's only like in the first like maybe quarter thirty minutes or so. But eventually, she sends her handmaiden along with Chaucer, who they've just picked up, so that she can now tell Oric because some things have changed, what her name is. When you watch that scene, of course, listen to it. But do your best to actually pay attention to William's friend. Uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, the, the, the guy that... Uh, the one that became uh, Baratheon. Roland, yeah. Yeah, uh, Roland. It, yeah, Roland, thank you. I couldn't remember his name. R- watch his face, because Roland's never seen anything that pretty in his life, evidently, because his ball, his mouth just drops. And it stays that way for that whole scene. In fact, Chaucer bids the handmaiden goodbye and then reaches over and slaps uh, Roland's mouth shut. That, to me, is the favorite, uh, my favorite scene because you can tell that both the handmaiden and Roland actually like each other. Um, and there, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, well, uh, I, I wanted to get on something else, so please please continue, and I'll, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. Well, I, I was just going to say, yeah, there's another scene later where the whole group is there and, and they're talking, but I think it's the one where uh, where William and Jocelyn might actually be arguing, but down at the far end of the scene, you've got Roland and Christiana talking to each other, and it's almost like they're on their own little mini date while there's an argument going on on the other side. So yeah, I, I, I like that little that little sprinkle in of the minor characters getting getting their own little moments to to shine. Yeah, as we were sitting here talking, uh, I got to think of what what are this, one of the aspects that this makes this movie really really work and. Uh, it kind of hit me for the first time here in the fact that William's crew, his group of people um, that he ends up gathering around him uh, are very likable in their interactions, which is very important for a movie like this. But also what also works is the archetypes they represent. I didn't dawn on me until right now how each of their characters play an archetype. It's another aspect now, I believe, of the actual way they told the story by mixing the medieval with the modern in the fact that I believe now if you actually would go back and think of archetypes when you watch it, you would realize that William is that archetype of the guy who is going to reach the stars, which is pretty obvious. But then you also have Roland, who is the the epitome of loyalty, who is going to hang with his friend even though he knows it's probably a bad idea. Then you have the redheaded guy. What's his name? What? What? Who, even though he doesn't want to, he will come along because he's been with these people. But it's not because of loyalty. It's more of, what can I get out of this? But it's also, he is loyal in a way of his defense. He's that archetype of, I'm the guy that's going to make sure, if I'm going to risk this, I'm going to make sure it happens. Even though it just sounds completely crazy half the time when he's telling like Chaucer he's gonna get pain lots of pain um so that's hilarious then you have the lady blacksmith who I believe is kind of that archetype of the person that's always been not quite accepted showing her um ability to be once she's accepted kind of letting her power out and opening up to those people that have accepted her and then you have Chaucer who guides in this very 
lofty manner. Uh, he has a definite way of looking at the world differently than like everybody else. And one of the prime examples is a great scene where he starts talking about his Lord Oric, and he's saying all these flowery words because he's a writer and they're all very huge and awesome. And he gets done introducing and talking about how great Oric is. And there's just silence because nobody understood what he said, but luckily Roland was there and he just kind of was like, yeah, that gets everybody started. Yay. It must've been good. The more I kind of think about it, the more I kind of I, I do believe that it may not be exact, and I may not know actually exactly how to word it. But each of the characters in this movie is kind of like that medieval archetype from a medieval type story, in which most medieval stories are not really about a character and exactly how they were. It was more of what do they represent? It's kind of like what I was said in the last episode when we talked about, uh, or another episode where we talked about uh, Dickens and how he made characters that were really archetypes. They weren't characters themselves, as in uh, they had all these different things. They were only purely one thing. And I think that helps this film as well. It's a buddy movie, right? This is, it's, it's like so many others. It's, it's your, your friends, your buddies all coming along and, and going along on this, this journey together. Um, there's no way that uh, Ulrich or, or William would have been able to pull this off on his own. He had to have this this group of friends around him. He had to have Roland. Um, Chaucer came in late, but you know serves a, a valuable role in in building up his reputation. And even uh, the Kate, the blacksmith, comes in and gives them that that female perspective. And all the he and that's what he needs to be able to develop as a character. He needs all these different elements from the people around him in order for his character to develop. And we get to see that development some. And I think that's one of the things that I really liked about this movie. Yeah, and that that point reminds me of one of my favorite quotes in the movie. Uh, it's later when the secret has been found out, and William is in. Is, is stockade the right word for it where he's kind of locked up in the town square and people are yes. throwing vegetables at him and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so the prince comes up, he's, he's kind of in a cloak, but he takes his hood off, takes a cloak off and everybody recognizes the black Prince of Wales, uh, Prince Edward. And, and they've already had a run in before where William showed him mercy and honor and Prince Edward never forgot that. So he he found out that uh, the secret got out and he goes up to to William, who, you know, is no longer known, known as Ulrich. And he says, what a pair we make, huh? Both trying to hide who we are, both unable to do so. Your men love you. If I knew nothing else about you, that would be enough. But you also tilt when you should withdraw. And that is nightly, too. So I just thought of that when you were talking about uh, all the support he got. Yeah, it, it, it is almost yeah. tear jerking. I was able to hold it together. But uh, but yeah, it you were talking about the loyalty and about the group working together and standing by William. And that is kind of the epitome of that, that even this prince sees it and recognizes it. And, and of course, acts on it in the, the last part of that scene. Yeah. So that uh, so that William actually does become a knight. of the royalty and i kind of want to take another kind of just a brief dive into what did you guys think on the way that the different classes were portrayed in this movie my lords my ladies and and everybody everybody else else not sitting on a cushion yeah (laughs) oh i'm sorry no that's perfect yeah that's exactly what it is 
this movie does a very good job of mixing the both, and I don't think there's any other way you could say it. If you if you like history, you're gonna like this film. I'm not kidding you. If you like history, you're gonna like this film. Did something like this actually happen in reality? Not exactly, not historically, technically. Um, but you know, jousts did happen, tourneys did happen. Uh, you did have knights that that's all they did was go to tourney. Uh, so when it comes to portraying like the characters that are not directly involved in the story, it's very, very accurate. Uh, the nobles, they're very aloof. They do not like being associated with uh, commoners. Uh, even the people directly under them, the ones that are like uh, kind of like the announcer of the games, same thing. They do a very, very good job of, of displaying the common people in this time period as their time period. Uh, if As a perfect opposite example, uh, when Chaucer gets himself into trouble, spoiler alert, uh, he runs afoul of, of two gentlemen. Those two gentlemen are portrayed in a perfect manner, I think, from a very historical point of view to show you what could have happened on the other end. So as far as the lords and the ladies go, even the priest in the church, basically dead on. You watch any other kind of historical film, that's the way those people are going to act because that's the way they did. And so when it comes from a historical point, from me staring at it, they're dead on even though you don't meet many now the prince he's a little different but then again the prince also is a little different because he's as todd just said he's doing kind of the same thing william is only in reverse he's trying to hide his his patency to be able to tourney because if people actually knew his patency nobody would joust him because it's definitely against the law so there you are I agree. I think um, it was interesting to see how they they played apart, played these roles and and looked at these roles. Um, you definitely know that there was these class divide during the time, but then the whole theme of the movie is, you know, can William change his stars? Can he become more than just the peasant Thatcher's son and become a knight? When in this time, in this world only those of noble birth can be a knight and through the actions and through what he does and being um, good at jousting, he's able to change his stars. That's why we mentioned it at the very beginning. It's very much as a sports movie, right? This is yeah, what this is a lot of sports are total to people underdog today. Movie. Total yeah, underdog it's, movie. It's the underdog. It's, it's yep. um, you know, there are many kids right now playing basketball shooting hoops as the sun goes down in the hopes that one day they can get out of where they're at now walk out onto a basketball court and be the next michael jordan they want to change their stars um and i think that gives people a lot to to attach on to and and root for in this movie yeah it's it's yeah i was gonna bring up the under uh, i was gonna bring up the underdog aspect if y'all hadn't hit it first but um oh, oh yeah yeah, and Dave, you were going to say something? Well, it's one of those examples where you take the standard basic, I mean, absolute basic uh, protagonist, antagonist story line and just decide, I'm just going to do this basic story. I know this story works. We all in this know, know, know this story works because we have all seen this story work. You know, the underdog 
rises to the challenge, becoming what he wants to become. There's the evil guy trying to stop him, and he fails. And everybody lives happily ever after. The story works. Why? Because we're human, and we love stories like this. Because typically, at some point, we can all point to somebody and go, that's me, you know? Well, it's even got With- the same elements of, I think I mentioned at the very beginning, you know, Rocky, Days of Thunder, any of those mm-hmm. movies, right? You have to lose in the beginning, right? Then you have this development, this long, drawn-out process to get where you're better and overcome the obstacles in your way. Um, part of his obstacles are, are Jocelyn, his love story. Um, you know, part of it is his overcoming his birth and, and being able to really compete to where he can come back in the end and, and do the ultimate, you know, comeback and ultimate defeat. Uh, you know, and he's even, what, jousting without armor um, as his, it has to have his lance strapped to his arm because he's been injured to, to, to be able to win in those circumstances. Uh, you know, it, it's very much that uh, tried and true, but it, it, it rings true for people. It's and, just too bad he dies at the end. Yeah, there you go. I didn't give the spoiler. I'm going to have to go back and, and edit in a, uh, hey, spoiler warning. Yeah, spoiler warning. And I can elaborate on this later if we get to a, a portion and, of that stuff. I'm but the whole thing about uh, the whole thing about the no armor and strapping the thing to his arm and stuff—that's actually become a little bit of one of my nitpicks. It's called so a lance. I, Hello. I, yeah, I, okay, lance. So I can, I can I can elaborate on that later. But I've got one more good thing I want to get to. Um, so not exactly a smooth transition. We but we bounced around a little bit talking about Jeffrey Chaucer. Uh, but maybe not mention him by name. It, it is the same guy that wrote the um, Canterbury Tales. Canterbury Tales. Thank you. And it's so he knows how he's good at words. He knows how to uh, write stories, poetry. He's kind of a bard. Uh, he he's the one that does the patents so that he can actually uh, prove uh, the lineage. So the guy that can get in the games and everything. But he is one of the better characters in the movie. Uh, because, uh, you know, everybody else is kind of lower class. You were talking about lower classes. He's kind of a, a step up in it. At the very least, he's got more education or a little bit more creative inspiration. So he's kind of the intellectual side of things. But he also helps bridge the gap between the upper class and lower class, because whenever he announces Sir Ulrich, he always talks to the the people in the cheap seats too. And, and that's already been mentioned, but yeah, what, but I, I hadn't the, thought about that till you, till you started talking about it, which was, you know, this movie does do a very good job of transitioning uh, because I hadn't even thought about that, but Chaucer really is that first beginnings of a middle class. That is the reason why the old way stopped was that mm-hmm. people started dragging themselves out. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Well, but one of the one of the coolest things about him is his introduction. Very unorthodox and kind of shocking if you've never seen the movie before, because our three main characters they're on the road. Uh, their their cart is taking up most of the room on the road. They're arguing, and then all of a sudden you just see this one hundred percent completely naked guy just walking uh, in between. Oh, excuse me. And he pats their horse and just keeps on walking completely naked. Not he, He's not even carrying a, a bag with any possessions in him, no money on him, no nothing. He is 100% completely naked. And that is, like I said, a very interesting introduction. And of course, he he uh, that's where they make the arrangement that he will do the patents in, in exchange for a little bit of uh, food and stuff like that and then of course he has a gambling problem loses all of his clothing so there's another scene later where he's naked and they have to 
bail him out and everything. And luckily they didn't do it a third time because I think they could have gone to the well a few too many times, but it was, it, it was kind of interesting that they did that joke twice. But uh, yeah, this is one of those things that makes uh, Jeffrey Chaucer really interesting and memorable character. I don't remember any of their Chaucer from high school. Yeah, one that appeared. One, one that appeared with Shuri Sutta. Oh. Yeah, I remember one yep, that appeared yep, with Shuri yep, Sutta. Yep. We remember our, our Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales. The Rus of March. Oh God, I keep doing that. The Rus of March. The Pearson to the. We had an English teacher, ladies and gentlemen, that made us learn the whole preface to Canterbury Tales, and we had to speak it in own English. And well, it might have been required because I'm not sure we had the same English teacher. Well, yeah, we didn't have the same thing as teacher, but they both got, they were both evil. They both got together and decided that that was what they were going to do. You do understand that, right? They, well, they had a classroom right next to each other just so they could laugh. You know they were doing it. But it might have been part of the required curriculum. <laughs> Listen to these high school kids. When did you pay me this? Here's your thing. Um, Sorry, the, uh, but Chaucer was to me also one of my favorite characters. I thought they played him well. I loved how they included the uh, Simon the Summoner and and uh, oh shoot I forget the other one Peter the um, yeah oh, any, uh, any, anyone with a bit of a of a of a bookish background you're actually at the beginning of this film just like I did first think that that you're going to see a film in which you're going to see almost every tale Chaucer wrote from his Canterbury Tales involved in this because when you see the two gamblers that he owes money to if i'm not mistaken there is an actual canterbury tale about those two guys uh yeah. And, yeah. and then later you're just expecting like the milkmaid and what have you and they don't appear but there is references to it in where you start thinking well maybe this knight's tale is chaucer's knight's tale uh from his canterbury tales it's not of course because it's completely different but it is interesting how that does play in there's so many little subtle things to this film that if you have if you can if you like it you're going to end up buying it and if you buy it you're going to watch it constantly and nine times out of ten you're going to spot something else or you're going to think of something else and go yeah that fits too it's just a wonderful movie hit on a couple of points because i know um, as much as i like this movie and we've talked about it much as i think everybody liked this movie i think there are some elements that that weren't top mm -hmm. and we had some concerns and i want to make sure we have just a couple of minutes before we get into our lightning round to discuss those todd seems eager i'm gonna let him jump on one of those what's one of your kind of things that weren't necessarily the best in this movie Okay, I've talked a little bit about the anachronisms and how they add to the movie. Uh, I mentioned the music. There's also uh, an aerial shot of London uh, near the end of the movie where I noticed it for the first time watching it uh, yesterday. You see a Ferris wheel off in the background. It's made out of wood, but it's right about where the London Eye would be in modern day. I and, have to go back and watch it. I missed that. Yeah, and the and the London Eye I think was completed and opened somewhere around 1999, the year 2000, and this movie came out in 2001. So it's almost like that's an homage to the the London Eye. So there are all kinds of uh, anachronisms that really work. But I've already mentioned a little bit about uh, Jocelyn, the the lady that that William has this huge crush on, uh, and how her she has a very unique and almost futuristic style, and I think it's supposed to be another one of those intentional anachronisms, the things that she dresses or the things that she uh, wears and the styles of her hair, but it just doesn't work. It, it is so annoying. 
uh, I, I wrote down all the different times that she appears. I think there are about 10 different appearances and she doesn't start looking halfway normal until somewhere around appearance number eight. Up until then, her hair is always either spiky or kind of a relaxed spiky, or there was one time where it was almost like a half-hearted uh, dreadlock type hairstyle. And sometimes it was up like a peacock and it, 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 it looks like her hair was usually styled as if it was used using a combination of electrocution, hairspray, and randomly shot paintballs, none of which existed <laughs> in medieval times. What? Was was it like uh, something about Mary? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it, 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 yeah, kind of. It it almost makes me wonder if yeah, if maybe she used something like that. Because there, yeah, there are times where hair is just sticking up, and it's and it's it's no offense to people who like spiky hairdos or colored hairdos. It's just that that's like super modern. That's that's now kind of modern. I know they were trying to go anachronistic, but I think they just went too far because it just. In that setting, it just made her look weird and so super out of place that not just um, not just William, but also Adamar and I think one or two other nobles kind of falling all over themselves over her. It just didn't seem to to fit. And then there's also uh, the part where just as she is starting to like him as much as he likes her, they get into an argument, and the argument doesn't even seem to be justified. It just kind of comes out of nowhere, and and I think that there, uh, oh, there's that portion of the movie where she says, if you really love me, you will start losing. So then he's got to lose to her, which, which hurts. And he's super bruised up afterwards. And then she is real flighty and changes her mind and says, oh, now you've got to win. It, it's just, she's kind of annoying too. And it's not until after his secret comes out and you can tell that she's in it anyway, that she really does love him and she will stick by him even with his secret out and that he is just William, not Sir Ulrich. That's when she finally becomes likable, but it's just a little too late in the movie. So I would consider her the biggest fault of this movie. I just wish her character had been designed better overall, both the look and the personality. Um, we can, we can discuss later the aspects and nuances. Of my friend Todd's bigotry against spiky hair. Um, you know. I said no offense to people <laughs> like that. I just said it doesn't work on her in this setting. The, the only thing I have really a problem with this film is a little bit is it going a little bit too far, uh, and they're stu it's stupid. It, they're just dumb. I'm not gonna lie to you. They're just dumb. For instance, the Nike symbol that's that was a little too hard to swallow. Uh, oh, when, come on. When you, when you watch it, you see it. To me, it's a little <laughs> too hard to swallow. It's like no, there's no way she would have just been like, oh, I'm just gonna use the two swishes from Nike. No. I'm pretty sure Nike went, hey, look, we paid a million dollars for this. Put the damn thing on the armor. And they went, okay. But oh, anyway. come on. That was a little thing. The, I, I said these are dumb. I'm not going to lie. They're, they're, they're dumb. That, and then the only other real problem I had with, with the film was the forklift scene at the very end after they beat Edamar. I don't know why it doesn't work for me, but if you ever, if you know anything about the movie industry or ever learn anything about the movie industry, you can make somebody laying on the ground look like they're floating for whatever reason or maybe mid land. And what you do is you literally like just lay them on a forklift and just raise the forklift up or have them on a lift of some sort. So where when you're doing a downward shot, they're separated from the ground. To me, I'm like, screw it. That guy deserves to be in the dirt. And so 
it doesn't it's not emotionally satisfying for me is the reason I have a problem for it because I think they ought to be looking down at him and he should be just absolutely in the dirt instead of kind of like hovering over it. Now I don't know if that was a good hair day and they didn't want to do that to him or maybe he had other shots to do that day, which maybe they did, maybe he did and they didn't want to mess it all up and that's the whole reason they decided to do it that way. But for me, I would have liked to have seen him just like, you know, just kind of like Loki at the end of like, you know, Avengers after the Hulk like just throws him around and he's like, that's what I wanted to see. But that's me anyway. Well, and it, that, that same scene was one of my nitpicks too. It, it's, it's Adamar's vision, I guess. That's why I don't like it. I'm not sure what it is. Is it a vision? Is it a hallucination? Is it one of those things that's just there for the audience for our purposes? And he's not actually seeing it. I don't understand exactly what it is because it's, it would be one thing if it were just him versus Sir Ulrich. But in that vision, hallucination, whatever, he is seeing all of William's people say something to him first and use his own words. Uh, what were the words? Uh, you, you have been Wait. weighed, you have been measured, you've been found wanting. And they use those same words against him, but it's one by one, the people on William's team. But we've already talked about the class distinctions and Adamar would never pay any attention to any of the people on William's team. So he, he like those people would be invisible to him. So it almost makes me wonder if maybe the way they shot those last few scenes was Adamar falls off the horse. Then they each come over to him as they're, as he's on the ground and they say that to him. And for some reason it interrupted the, the flow of the ending and maybe they edit it in as a vision or hallucination, but it just feels out of place. I like you, I wish it would be gone, but, but for a different reason, I, I just, I didn't like that. I didn't think it worked. I think for me, and I think it was the reason that I had an issue with it the first time I watched it. Whenever you're watching any good movie, you have an area where you have to um, kind of turn off your own little bit of disbelief. And this movie challenges it so much, whether it's a Nike symbol, whether it's a modern day song and dance in the middle, whether it's a, a scene that's just filmed in a certain cinematographic way. It makes it very difficult for you to completely immerse yourself into it. It almost kicks you out at times and you're going, oh, wait. Now, in some ways, it's fun and, you know, it makes the quirkiness of the movie kind of stand out. But to me, I think that was one of the issues. It, it, it challenges your disbelief so much at times that it interrupts the flow of the movie. Yeah, mm -hmm. just it's just that being said, it's yeah, fun. Just it's too a fun much movie. every now and then. Yeah. Just every now and then, it's just too much. Can, can well, I work in one more negative? Uh, you have to kick it in in the 30-second lightning round because we are at that time. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. We're in our 30-second lightning round time. Uh, for those of you who are new to our podcast, this is where we'll each have 30 seconds to say anything that we want about this movie. Last-minute comments, good, bad, whatever. Um, and... That way we can kind of get out anything that we didn't get a chance to say earlier. After that, we'll each give our rating for this film. So you guys will have something tangible to take home and uh, think about as you are, you know, thinking about this movie. And who will now wants to go in our lightning round first? I'll go because I'm easy. All right. All right. Who's got our stopwatch? Todd, you got our stopwatch? Oh, oh sorry. Oh, I guess I should probably do Sorry that. Sorry about that. Okay. I was getting ready for what I was going to say. Okay, yes, I've got, a, I've got it ready. <laughs> All right, Dave, okay. you got 30 seconds. Take it away. Go. Go. Um, I don't really have a lot 
extra to say about this film. I pretty much said it all. There's not much more I can think of just sitting here to tell you in 30 seconds, uh, besides the fact that it's just a really good film. For for the little tiny flaws in it, you're going to have fun watching it. And that's all I got. That's easy enough. You got like another 10 seconds. Um, girls are hot. <laughs> Football is fun. <laughs> Apple cider is good. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> it works for me. Okay. Hey, Todd, do you want to go last? Or you want to go next? Uh, I'll go. I'll, I'll go next. Okay. Right. Here we right. go. We'll get you and... 30 seconds on the clock. Okay. And, and go. Go. All right. My other nitpick was uh, the ending where William risks his life way too much for the, that final joust, going with no armor and strapping the thing to his arm. He could have been killed. His dad was there. It, it, I, I know he's now a knight. It's all about honor and everything, but he's really more an athlete, and that was just a game. Uh, also, uh, another quote we didn't get to, Watt says, what do you mean dead? Roland says, uh, the spark of his life is smothered in shite. His spirit is gone, but his stench remains. Does that answer your question? In three seconds to spare. That's yeah, perfect. Awesome. awesome. It's called a lance. Hello. Hello. Oh crap! I gotta turn off my alarm thing. Okay. But, but by the way, you'll if you go and watch this film, you'll understand why I keep saying that. Yep. 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 I guess that leaves it to me. My thirty seconds. Somebody tell me when to go. Okay. Ready? Go. So, yeah, just to sum up, I, I love this movie. I think it's a good time. I think there are some moments of having to challenge your disbelief. There are a lot of really good quotes. It's one of those movies just chock full of them. Most of them we've mentioned. Um, even the, you know, hello, it's a lot. Um, but then we also have where they're chanting, chanting Gilderland. And I'll let us all kind of go out on that note as we chant, Gilderland, Gilderland, Gilderland. Gilderland. What? You guys have got to learn timing. We, we, yeah, we are not going to win any singing awards. Of course, it doesn't help that the least musical person was the one that started that. But hey. Hey, I realized we got to the end and we didn't have it in there. So, you know, I had to, I had to figure I, out. I had it. I had you covered. I was already oh, thinking it. But that's okay. It's okay. It's all right. You wanted to do it. You had to have the spotlight again. <laughs> but that's all right. So what are we doing next time? No, no, no. Oh, we got to go. We got to give a rating. Oh, that's that whole thing. Well, haven't we already said it's great? No, no. People fine. need like, yeah. no. But we have to attach a value to it. <sighs> fine. A buck and a half. All right, fine. <laughs> I give it a seven, but I can't dance to it. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, Todd. What's your rating? Okay, uh, this movie was fun, quirky, charming. I love the music and the anachronisms. It's got strong characters, uh, slight penalties for the Jocelyn character, some of the costumes, and some aspects of the ending. But overall, it's way up there. Uh, not as you know, not as good as The Martian. I gave an A plus to uh, last week. Uh, I'm going to say an A minus, and this would probably be one of my top forty, top fifty favorite movies. Um, in fact. It should be on my spreadsheet, and I forgot to look and see exactly where it places right now. But uh, yeah, it's it's way up there, so I give it an A minus. Oh, very cool. I'm gonna go ahead and stick with um, my number system. Um, very similar to Todd. I, I, I think it's all the time, just easy, fun watch. Nothing that you're going to like. Think, hey, this is something we need to 
teach how to make a movie off of. You know, it's not one of those that's changed an industry in any way, shape, or form. Um, so I give it a good solid seven. Seven out of ten. If if you're following me for movie ratings, you're either going to be very happy or very disappointed because this movie rates the same level as Martian. Go see it. Pay full price for it. Pay matinee. Does not matter. Watch it on a Saturday. Rent it. Buy it. I don't care. You need to see this movie. You should just see it because it's fun. And that's how lots of times I base a lot of my decisions on. Is it fun for me to watch? If it's fun for me to watch, I don't give a crap how much money I spend for it. And so to me, this is on the same level as Martian. Now, if you compare the two together, of course not. Night's Tale is going to be below. But basically, this is another movie I would say, if you have the chance to go see it, go see it. Do not. It does not matter. Like I said, if it is uh, 8 o'clock at night, you're paying full price, or matinee movie, you're going to enjoy it, and you're not going to feel like you wasted your money. I like it. I like it. So we're going to end up our finish our podcast like we do every week with each of us suggesting the movie that we would like to review next week. Yes. Anybody have a top choice they've been thinking about for a week that they want to throw out there that we should do next week? Killer Clowns. The Lake House. <laughs> <laughs> oh, The Lake House. Oh, that uh, you know what? I I have to actually ponder that one, Todd. I really do. Uh, even though I shouldn't shouldn't give it away with the lake house, yeah, I hadn't thought about that one. Well, I, I love Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves is underrated, and in fact, that movie's underrated. Now, there again, yeah, that, I think I've only seen it once or twice, once or twice, and it was a long time ago. No, 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 but, complete agreement. Yeah, yeah. Every once in a while, I hear people say, "Oh, that oh that lake house is terrible." Yeah, no, it's not. No, it's not. I'm traveling movie kind of in a way somehow. Yeah, letters, letters from the future. Yeah, yeah, it counts. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, a magical. Uh, yeah, a magical mail mo- mail, yeah, mailbox. Magical that transports. Uh, it transports messages back and forth. We are. We are. We are all educated. <laughs> Great. Now we're gonna hate letters. It's still funny, man. It's like sorry. Uh, if I had to guess one, how about uh, how about Men in Black? Ooh. <laughs> there was there was kind of like a wait 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 hold on and, and a er. Did, mm. Are you talking original Men in Black or the yes. new one that came yeah, out? Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> Which, to be honest, I only saw that once. I think they called it International or something. They called it, I... yeah, they called it Men, Men in Black International. So it's kind of a okay. sequel. It's not really what you, you know. There's, there's Men in Black, yeah. then there's the second one, and then there's that one. I think. Yeah, I haven't seen that one yet, but or somehow the, I feel like I'm pretty cool. lucky that I haven't. So, well, yeah. it's quickly. It's it's not as bad as it could have been, but when you compare it with the first three that you fell in love with, or really the first one, uh, yeah, it's it's very weak. But anyway. Okay, okay. Well, I, I was going to say I'm going to go old school. Yeah, it's a, I mean, not too far from the time frame you guys, though. I'm going with, you know, Michael Keaton Batman. Ooh, that is... okay. That's okay. that's high school days, isn't it? Yeah, nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine, Batman. Oh my god, that's know. that's freshman high school days. You know, very interesting Joker. Yeah. You know, not quite Heath Ledger, right? Because we have kind of a Heath Ledger t- tie in here, but um, that's true. That's know. true. Um, but yeah, maybe that's why I'm kind of thinking about Heath Ledger, but he wasn't in this one. Yeah. Well, we'll just have to we'll just have to decide, and everybody will have to find out next time. All right. 
Well, this is the Discerning Geeks signing off. You guys have a great evening. Bye. Bye. Greetings, lords, ladies, and knights of geekdom. Thank thee for listening to the second episode at the Discerning Geeks portal. If you'd like to contact us, our email address is discerninggeeks at gmail.com. Look for us on Facebook at Discerning Geeks Portal and on Twitter at Discerning Geeks. We're just getting started, so continue checking back as we add new content. Until our next joust, I'm afraid without any more of you whatsoever, be well, stay safe, and continue enjoying whatever makes you a Discerning Geek.